Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosli. The European Union began as an effort to integrate Western Europe's coal and steel industries and foster regional cooperation. It must be all for all. We cannot aim at anything less than the Union of Europe as a whole. And we look forward with confidence to the day when that union will be achieved. Started in 1957 as the European Economic Community between Belgium, France, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and West Germany, it formally became the EU in 1993 with six other members. The EU has since expanded further to its current 27 members. We're welcoming 10 new member states into the European Union. And today marks a new beginning for Europeans. The 1st of May 2004 is a day of hope and opportunity. That's down from 28 members at the end of last year. Once the largest empire, Britain is an island again. After much controversy, the United Kingdom formally withdrew from the EU at the end of January. This is the moment when the dawn breaks and the curtain goes up on a new act in our great national drama. Brexit caused much consternation within the EU, which had already faced enormous challenges. Europe's debt crisis appears to be deepening with Ireland. The brutality of ISIS and the ongoing war in Syria have triggered an epic humanitarian crisis. From Geert Wilders to Marine Le Pen and from Viktor Orban to Matteo Salvini, the figureheads of European populism have been making waves at the ballot box in recent years. Still, says our next guest, the EU is a formidable force. In fact, she argues, the EU, despite not having a standing military, is a superpower. Hello? Hi, Anu. It's Elmira. Elmira, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Anu Bradford is a professor at Columbia Law School and a senior scholar at the Jerome H. Hazen Institute for Global Business. Where are we finding you today? I am actually at home in New York. We decided to stay in the city. She is the author of The Brussels Effect, How the European Union Rules the World. Okay. Are you uh, in the city as well or have you left? No, I'm, I'm in Brooklyn. Okay, we are recording now. Great. Anu, I want to start by asking, what is the Brussels effect? Can you give us a few examples? Uh, sure. So the Brussels effect refers to the, the EU's ability to unilaterally regulate the global markets. So the EU is one of the largest consumer markets in the world, and there are very few global companies that can afford not to trade in the EU. So they will follow the EU regulation as the price for accessing that market. But not only do they follow those EU rules with respect to the products they export to the EU, but often it is in the interest of these companies to apply the EU rule across their worldwide production because they want to forego the cost associated with having different production lines and different kind of conduct tailored for each individual market. And this is something that happens across many industries. So we have many examples from the field of technology. There are global companies like Microsoft, Google or Facebook that are conforming their global privacy policy to the EU rules. But we also see global chemical companies and companies that use chemical in their products, tailor their products to the EU's regulation of chemicals. We see examples in food safety, in environmental protection, and so on. 
So you just listed a number of areas that the EU has rigorous regulation on. What makes the EU a regulatory hegemon, and can this be replicated elsewhere? So first of all, to acclaim that title, you need to have a large domestic market. If you are a small country like Costa Rica and you would want to be a very stringent environmental regulator, the global companies would just shun your market if they think that those regulations are too costly for them to comply with. So you need to be a large market with the EU is. But China is a large market. The United States is a, la- a large market. Yet we do not see the Beijing effect. Yet we do not see the Washington effect. So why the EU? Not only is the EU a very large consumer market, it also has the regulatory capacity, the regulatory institutions that help it translate that market power into tangible regulatory influence. So China, for instance, does not have the kind of regulatory institutions that have the technical expertise and the ability to promulgate those rules and to enforce those rules uh, both domestically and internationally. The United States, on the other hand, there's plenty of regulatory capacity in Washington, D.C. But what makes the U.S. different is that the regulatory capacity in Washington rests largely idle. There has been very little political will to deploy the regulatory capacity. So you do need to have the large market, the regulatory institutions, but also then the will to deploy those institutions towards stringent regulations. Well, you mentioned that there's no Beijing effect, and that might be true right now, but China's economy continues to grow stronger. And sooner or later, it is going to eclipse the United States in economic power. When that happens, will China be able to force the Brussels effect to go away? Yeah, so I think that is a fascinating question, and it is something that I discuss in the book, whether one day we will indeed see the Beijing effect uh, replace the, the Brussels effect. And the claim that I would be prepared to make is not that I would underestimate the significance of China's growth or its ability to overtake the US and the EU and be more significant economic power in terms of its GDP. Rather, China will not have the regulatory power that will match its economic power measured poorly uh, based on GDP, and that the EU's regulatory power will outlive for a while, the EU's uh, economic power uh, as captured by the GDP alone. It is the GDP per capita that better explains the country's ability and willingness to regulate than the GDP alone. You need to have wealthy enough consumers that are demanding for higher levels of regulation. And even if you look at the Chinese GDP per capita and compare that to that of the EU in 2050, The Chinese GDP per capita is about half of that of the EU, even that long far ahead in the future. So it will be a while before the Chinese demand for costly regulations will match the demand in the EU. And by the time that Chinese consumers will be wealthy enough, the Chinese GDP growth most likely has slowed down to the extent that the Chinese government may be quite unwilling to enact regulations that may have the potential then to further slower that growth. 
So I think it will be a while before we see the Beijing effect overtake the, the Brussels effect as the norm that the rest of the world will follow. So we've been talking about all of these great things that the European Union is doing in terms of regulation and creating this Brussels effect. But the EU faces serious challenges. And for the better part of the last decade, we've seen the EU grapple with migration and refugee issues. Members within the bloc have taken an illiberal turn and challenged democratic norms, as we've seen in Poland and in Hungary. And then there's Brexit, which took place at the end of January. And today, as we're taping this, we're going through the COVID-19 outbreak. The EU has failed to come together to support member states. Taking those challenges together, would that not make the EU a declining power at risk of unraveling? So they are serious crises, and I think they have left the EU reeling in many ways. But at the same time, they have not led to the unraveling of the, the fundamental functioning of the European Union and its core institutions. So the EU has proven to be quite resilient in the face of the crisis. And especially if you think about the EU's regulatory capacity, it has potentially only grown throughout these challenges. So partially because the EU is governed through a very technocratic process. These technocratic institutions, including the European Commission, they are quite isolated from the politics of the day, from the crisis mentality. So even if the, the Council of Ministers are debating many of these crises, the technocratic commission still hums along and continues with uh, promulgating, preparing, enforcing the various regulations. And often, even if you then think about we elevate it to the analysis at the policy level, often the response to the crisis has been more Europe and not less Europe. So if we think about the migration crisis, where the EU has not had enough powers because this is something that belongs to the domain of the member states, we've seen the bolstering of the Frontex, the border guard uh, across the EU. When we think about the financial crisis and the lack of common fiscal policy to support the common monetary policy, we've actually seen a lot of uh, efforts to rebuild the European architecture that has included then more transfers of fiscal sovereignty to the EU. So often the crises have been resolved by then are trying to do more as opposed to less at the European level. And I would not be surprised if the response to the coronavirus is a realization that the EU did not have enough powers when it came to public health and how a lot of severe public health crises like pandemics need more coordinated and more common response where the EU is the natural actor as opposed to individual member states. I want to touch quickly on Brexit. In one interview you did, you argued that the UK will have to conform quite closely with EU regulations despite no longer being in the EU. Can you explain? So when it comes to Brexit, there is this what I call a false promise of the UK government that the government is still trying to deliver, which suggests that there would be regulatory freedom that is awaiting the UK on the other side of Brexit. But I argue that Brexit does not really mean Brexit. There is no political choice available for the government that would allow the UK to unleash itself from the EU's regulatory reach. The EU regulations continue 
to affect the, the UK's economic life long after leaving the European Union. And if you think about why, the answer lies in just the closeness and the importance of the EU's market to the UK companies. About 45% of the UK's trade is with the European Union. And the EU is the number one export destination for critical UK industries, whether we talk about aerospace, automobiles, chemicals, pharmaceuticals, telecommunications, um, financial services. The companies from these industries need to access the EU market after Brexit. And in order to engage in the EU market, they need to follow the EU rules. So the question for these companies becomes whether these companies would then want to set up the second production line, for instance, the automobile manufacturers, and produce according to a different standard for the UK market that is six times smaller than the EU market. And it is not in their economic interest to do so. So for that reason, no matter what the government promises when it comes to regulatory sovereignty, in fact, the business incentives of the companies lead to an inevitable regulatory alignment, where the Brussels effect will be shaping the UK standards also in the post-Brexit world. What will change, though, and this is something that will be more disconcerting to the advocates of the Brexit, is that the UK will no longer be sitting at the table where those regulations are being written. So we may see a many more stringent regulations emanating from Brussels, where the UK's pro-market voice is there, not, not there restraining the content of those regulations, and where there is much more space for pro-regulation countries such as France and, and Germany to shape the content of those regulations. So the UK will be a rule taker as opposed to rule maker in potentially even more uh, stringently regulated Europe. We'll be right back. If you're a regular listener to Opinion Has It, you may find yourself asking, how can you help support the work we do here on the podcast? Honestly, the best way is to become a subscriber at Project Syndicate. And now we're offering our listeners 50% off a new subscription. That means for less than $1 a week, you can help us continue to interview the experts and join a community that's committed to a crucial public good, a truly open world of ideas. Use the discount code PODCAST2020, that's PODCAST2020, all one word, when you subscribe on project-syndicate.org. Anu, I want to pick up on the point on data protection. That's an area many will agree that the EU has left a noticeable mark on global conduct and trade. Certainly, we've seen major U.S. tech companies align their global standards with EU regulations, but many companies, particularly in China, have not. Is a clash coming? I would say that there already is a rather deep clash when it comes to the protection of individual privacy. And I would say that there are three competing approaches. There's the Chinese way, the American way, and the European way. And the Chinese approach relies on digital authoritarianism, which does tolerate government surveillance. Then the American way, which I would describe as a resting on this 
a techno-libertarian view, um, which does protect uh, individual liberties in the face of government surveillance, but at the same time, it is not very willing to constrain the private companies in order to extend the same kind of privacy protections that the Europeans have extended. And the European approach, which relies on this notion of digital paternalism, where the government does step in in order to safeguard uh, personal privacy. An interesting question is how this debate and how this clash of values is being shaped by the corona pandemic. So the way Chinese have been quite successful in managing to flatten the curve and change the course of the virus is by relying on extensive surveillance, something that at least in the past would have been entirely unacceptable for the Europeans. But now even the Europeans are forced to harness technology for contract tracing, but they are going to pains to try to do it so that it is consistent with the European values so that we would not have an automatic inclusion of individuals into any kind of surveillance scheme, but the individuals could voluntarily opt in to this contract tracing and how we would not be passing on this data to the governments or to the telecommunications companies, or um, how we would make sure that the data used for contract tracing remains anonymous. The theories that any drastic surveillance mechanisms become entrenched and becomes the normal way we think about how the balance between surveillance and individual liberties should be set. And I expect there to be a very heated conversation about the role of privacy in the post-pandemic world. And I expect the Europeans to exert a very strong voice in that conversation. You just touched on China's authoritarian tendencies, particularly in terms of how it flattened the curve on the coronavirus in its own country. And you touched on the increased surveillance that is being undertaken in China now. And that's very much a point that human rights activists touch on. They're very concerned about China's surveillance society. And this is another thing that the EU is known for in addition to regulatory power is its position on human rights and the rule of law. The bloc's common foreign and defense policy, however, is underdeveloped to say the least. How will this affect the new European Commission's ambition to project the EU's influence globally? Yes, the new Commission has outlined a very ambitious uh, view of, and it's communicated its desire to be a geopolitical commission. And I think this is a very big uh, goal, and it's a goal that is quite difficult to deliver. The EU has not been traditionally a geopolitical superpower, and we're still trying to uh, struggle to some extent understand what that definition of a geopolitical superpower would be in the EU's context. The EU is not a military power. There is no common European army, and I do not see the kind of appetite for the EU to build uh, that kind of role uh, either. But that doesn't mean that the 
the EU wants to be absent, for instance, when we talk about the geopolitical aspects of the deployment of technology. And the EU's concerns, for instance, when China is quite successfully exporting its surveillance technology um, to many authoritarian governments around the world that see the Chinese technology very beneficial in their attempts to control crime or uh, support their authoritarian uh, government policies more broadly. So I think the EU has a real concern that the battle of values is getting more heated and the EU finds that there is a value that needs defending, not just in the EU, but around the world, that there is an alternative to the kind of techno-libertarianism that the United States is advocating and this digital authoritarianism that has been the Chinese way uh, up until now and most likely going forward. So the EU talks about the need to claim technological uh, sovereignty. The EU talks about the need need to defend uh, the civil liberties and human rights, which are under threat. But if we think about traditionally the EU's concern and ability to influence human rights, for instance, around the world, that has been quite limited. So the foreign policy instruments that the EU has had in its disposal have been quite restricted in their ability to uh, influence the country's policies and uh, achieve some kind of a lasting change. So the human rights record in many parts of the world, even if the EU would have had human rights and labor rights and other rights uh, included as conditions in trade agreements with the EU, those have been very difficult to enforce. So there is a long path to many foreign policy goals that the EU is trying to export through political instruments. What the Brussels effect focuses on is the kind of market-based instruments where the EU's enforcement capacity and traditional logic of geopolitics has not been at, at play, where the EU has been able to rely on the business incentives of companies to change their practices globally to the direction that has been the desired policy goal of the EU. And I think one of the most interesting but difficult questions are now whether any of that would translate, uh, any of those market instruments would translate in the more geopolitical context and allow the EU to leverage its power in those areas as well. And there I am less optimistic. So much of the EU's regulatory power stems from its vast market of 440 million people. And that's clearly made possible by the Schengen Agreement, the open borders that it has. That openness has never been put to the kind of test as we see now with the coronavirus pandemic. Europe's open borders are closing. Germany joins a growing list of EU countries to at least partially shut out their neighbors. Yes, it is true that no one was really ready for this. It is also true that too many were not there on time when Italy needed a helping hand at the very beginning. And yes, for that, it is right that Europe as a whole offers a heartfelt apology. Member states have taken different approaches to stemming the contagion and borders have tightened. With many in Europe calling for power to return to the nation state, will the pandemic have a lasting institutional legacy? So I think the pandemic will have a lasting institutional uh, legacy 
around the world, Europe included. I think it is a really a moment to uh, reflect and potentially rebuild and rethink uh, these institutions. So, for instance, the health policy is currently a member state competency. There is only so much that the EU can do, yet I think there is little disagreement that the more efficient response would be a coordinated response where we have the EU take the lead and where the solidarity among the member states is not debated. It is something that it should be automatic. So I think we may see some rethinking of even more integration and more regulation when it comes to more integration approach in some areas, including in the domain of public health. But whether this will leave a broader institutional legacy that would, for instance, lead to the erosion of the European Union and the integration because of the, the re-erecting the borders and the, the more nationally defined responses. That, I think, it is a legitimate fear. If you also think about the, the various anti-EU sentiments that already are there before the coronavirus, there's obviously this idea that the member states are growing very skeptical of the EU's ability to protect them the way that they believe that their nation states uh, will protect them. So I do not want to underestimate the challenge that there is and the conversation that will follow, that will force us to rethink what the benefits of the, the EU are. But if you also think about the many areas that are at the core of the EU's regulation and the kind of activities that the EU does, I do not expect that we see necessarily those to be uh, scaled back. Anu, you've argued that Brussels has all the power it needs to institute major regulatory reform and to become a global player. Henry Kissinger once famously asked, who do I call if I want to speak to Europe? Does Europe have an answer to that question now? So the answer depends on which policy domain you talk about. So if you really want to talk about the Iran deal, you want to talk about uh, how to deal with uh, North Korea, how to respond to various geopolitical challenges, you do not call Brussels, you do not call the President of the Commission, you do not call the European Council, but you will be calling the Member States. So that's an area where there is no really common established European voice, at least as the, the lone voice speaking for the entire Europe. But when it comes to regulation, when it comes to uh, the areas of the single market that the EU is externalizing through the Brussels effect, that's when the EU has the power. That's when you can start by calling the, the president of the commission, Ursula von der Leyen, and ask what the EU is doing. So it really depends on the areas. And if the EU has tried to develop a one voice when it comes to also uh, foreign uh, policy, it has its high representative. But I do not think the foreign leaders around the world have yet associated uh, Brussels as the center of gravity for all those different foreign policy debates. But increasingly, when it comes to, for instance, competition policy, antitrust, and all those cases against the against Google and other American tech companies, everybody knows it is the Commissioner Margaret Feshtager who is leading that fight. Anu, we end each episode by asking our guests this question. What gives you hope? So I'm an optimist. I, I will always have hope. And I think the hope is that if you imagine the alternative, the life without 
European Union, the life without common institutions, the life without many of the policies that has made Europe stronger, that has improved the lives of individual Europeans, their families, their communities, their countries. When you look at the history, I think it is very hard to give an intellectual account where you say that we would be better off without the European Union. And at the same time, I think the alternative world where we think about even globally, whereby um, globalization would be retreat, the borders close, we all would be hunkered into our national domains. It is not a world that gives me the hope. So in many ways, I think we have been forced to rethink globalization. We have been forced to rethink European integration. Um, we have been forced to rethink whether we need to rebuild some of those common policies and institutions. And I think that is an opportunity to rethink them in the way that make them better, that help us build on the failures and mistakes. But what can emerge from that? I think that can be something stronger and something that is really worth uh, building and investing in and thinking through. So yeah, it does give me hope. A new thank you. Thank you so much. That was Anu Bradford. She is a professor of law at Columbia Law School and the author of The Brussels Effect, How the European Union Rules the World. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosli. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brasalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Dunham.